Uh, we are returning this Lord's Day as we begin the new year to our study of the book of Hebrews. So uh, if you will, if you haven't already, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 today. Uh, if you've been with us as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together, you know that the writer of Hebrews has really gone to great length to make sure we understand some foundational truths about Jesus. Uh, he spent a great deal of time going back to the Old Testament and helping us to see how uh, the picture of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, the office of priests and especially high priests, how all these things prepared us and God's people to better understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That Jesus is our great high priest and he's the one who gives us access uh, before the throne of God. And so now we've come to a point in the book of Hebrews where uh, there's going to be more application to these things we've learned. Uh, many of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11 that speaks uh, about that great challenge to have faith and points out examples of faith throughout the Scripture. And so that there's a lot that we're going to be now turning to that helps us to see how do we apply these things that we've been learning, uh, beginning with today's text. And so in God's providence, I think it's nice that it falls on the first Sunday of the year because this is a time of year when many people make resolutions. Uh, New Year's resolutions are a very common thing. Uh, some of you may make them, some of you may not, but uh, this is a good Sunday to consider what our resolve should be as followers of Jesus Christ, especially in light of God's Word and in light of this passage today. And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read God's Word to us this morning. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you would pray with me. Father God, help us to live in obedience and in faith to Your Word, especially, Lord, as we say the day of Christ is drawing near. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is now going into my 10th uh, year here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. And so I was looking back 
through my notes, and so this is the 10th opportunity I've had to start out a year with you. And on some of those uh, Lord's Days at the beginning of the year, uh, we've talked about resolutions. Other times we've just continued through a passage. And then there's days like today when those things kind of link up and go together. And so that's why you see there the title of the sermon is about resolutions for 2020 because in this text today that we've come to in God's providence, uh, there's an encouragement here for us to have a resolve, to have a biblical resolve. And yet, New Year's resolutions are something that uh, not all people make. They, they have an ancient history. This whole process of making resolutions goes all the way back to the Romans and the Babylonians. In fact, the Romans had a god that they believed oversaw uh, new beginnings. It was the god Janus. Uh, Janus was depicted uh, about the ancient Romans as having two faces. Uh, Janus would look forward and would look backward. And so uh, the reason that our calendar starts with January comes from the Roman belief in Janus, this god of new beginnings. And so the Romans and later the Babylonians uh, would make uh, commitments. They would make resolutions at the beginning of the year. Now, these were very pagan resolutions. They were basically making commitments to pagan gods. They were making commitments to their fellow man. They believed that they should uh, pay back anything they owed at the beginning of the year, for example. And so some look at that and say, well, why would Christians ever associate themselves with anything that was once a pagan practice? And, and what I say to that is that uh, while it really doesn't matter, I don't think we're instructed in the Word to, to have a resolution at the beginning of the year, there's certainly a lot in the Scripture that talks about having biblical resolve. Uh, we as Christians are encouraged to have resolve, to make commitments in our faith. Uh, we see a great example of that in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we find in Daniel's story that uh, he and some other Hebrew young men had been taken into captivity uh, by the Babylonians who worshipped false gods and had pagan practices. And those came down even to their diets and what they ate. And so as a good uh, Hebrew young man, uh, Daniel would not eat certain foods because they were associated with pagan practices and with uncleanliness. And so Daniel, we find in Daniel 1, makes a resolve. In fact, we read this in Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And if you know Daniel's story, you know that this resolution that Daniel made, God really blessed it. And we see this is a practice, an encouragement, not just in the Old Testament, uh, but in the New as well. In fact, we find the Apostle Paul praying for and encouraging the believers in Thessalonica in regard to their resolve, their resolutions. Uh, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, To this end, Paul writes, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by His power. And so Paul here essentially is praying for these believers saying, I'm praying for God to work in you and for God to empower you to fulfill the things you resolve to do. And so I do believe it's a, it's a biblical thing for us as believers to resolve, to commit, to make decisions and act on them. 
And I think this, uh, in our culture, is a good time of year to do that. And especially as we come to this text. Because here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, uh, we see three times the writer of Hebrews say, Let us. Uh, This is a call to action. He's essentially laid out this argument for ten chapters now on on what it means that Jesus is our great high priest and the access we have before God through Jesus. And now he says, okay, in response to these things, here's what we need to do about it. Here's what we need to resolve. And so I want us to consider these resolutions as we walk through this text today. I've listed out five of them for you beginning with the first one there in your notes. As believers, we should resolve to have confidence in Christ. To have confidence in Christ. And notice there in verse 19, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, that's a, a reference to brothers and sisters. He's talking here to brothers and sisters in the faith, to fellow Christians, to these Hebrew followers of Jesus. He's saying, therefore, brothers, since we have Confidence. And that word means a, a boldness, a, a courage, a, a fearlessness. Well, why would they have such a boldness, courage, and fearlessness? Well, it's in light of all these things that he's already talked to them about. And he's saying this, this confidence, this boldness, this fearlessness they have, it's rooted in Jesus Christ. In fact, the writer of Hebrews mentions six different times confidence and every time the writer of hebrews talks about confidence it's always in reference to a confidence that we have in our faith a confidence that's rooted in jesus christ and it's important that we notice that distinction because we live in a culture in a world that talks a lot about self-confidence in fact a lot of resolutions that people make this time of year have to do with their self-confidence And so self-confidence is something where we're encouraged to have. People around us will rally and say, uh, you can do it, you can push through, they'll they'll help us with our goals. And and these are good things. It's good to have self-confidence. It's good to encourage one another in this way. But we need to understand that here in Hebrews, the writer is not suggesting that as Christians, we need more self-confidence. The writer here is saying we need to remember our confidence is rooted in in Jesus Christ. We need to have a Christ confidence. See, in your faith, self-confidence can be a bit tricky because it's very easy for us to rely on self-confidence and to try to will ourselves into the Christian life and it doesn't work that way. In fact, some of you have experienced this and you've gotten very frustrated. Maybe at this time of year is a time when you sit down and decide, well, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. And you find a a Bible reading plan and you start checking that off. And for most of us, that goes really well through Genesis. And then you start to get into some other books of the law and start to read about shellfish and other things. And it's not quite as exciting for you as you get out of those narratives. And somewhere around numbers, we usually skip a few days and a few months and then we think, well, I'll start over next year. And, and it's kind of this process sometimes of self-determination. Well, I'm just going to will myself to do it. If I just read my Bible every day, then I'll be a better Christian. Now again, I, I think you should read your Bible daily. 
God's Word encourages us to. We see uh, the psalmist, Psalm 1, blesses the man who meditates on the Word of God day and night. So read it twice a day, three times a day, read it the whole day. That's a good thing to do. But we have to be careful because it's very easy for us to slide into a performance trap and for us to think, well, if I just will myself, Notice there's a difference here because the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, no, this isn't about willing yourself. This is about trusting in Jesus Christ. Have confidence, not in what you can do, but have confidence in what Christ has already done. Your confidence should not be rooted in the faith you might have. Your confidence should be rooted in the complete and entire faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then he walks through that. Verse 19, he says, because of Jesus, not because of us, because of Jesus, we can now enter in. We, we can go into the holy place. And you think about this picture we've seen of the tabernacle and, and the temple in the Old Testament, and the picture primarily tells us two things. One, it tells us that God desires to dwell with His people. The, the temple, the tabernacle, was not man's idea. This was God's instruction because God desired and still desires to dwell with His people. People. And so we see that picture, but we also see that God did not just come in among His people, that there was separation and there were barriers. Because while the temple and the tabernacle teach us that God desires to dwell with His people, it also teaches us that there's a separation between a holy God and sinful man. Now, this is why we see in creation, God creates the sanctuary, a place for perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve, and they're sinless. But when they sin against God, now there's separation between holy God and sinful man. The tabernacle and the temple show us that separation. But notice what's happened here. Because of Jesus Christ, there's no longer separation. But because of Jesus Christ, we can go into God's presence. Because of Jesus, He's opened up the way, verse 20, through His flesh. Because Jesus, verse 21, He's our high priest. Therefore, our confidence should rest fully in Him. And that is so important for us to remember. Because there are times for many of us when we don't feel very worthy in our faith. And you may find that there's times in your life where you struggle to pray. And you struggle to pray because you just don't feel worthy to pray. You feel like you're such a sinner and you've messed up and you've not obeyed. You feel like, well, I haven't read my Bible enough and I haven't gone to church enough. And, and, and who am I? Why would God hear my prayers? Well, that comes from thinking. That comes from processing through prayer from a very self-centered perspective. We're, we're thinking about ourselves and our self-confidence. And yet, what do we find? We find that our confidence is rooted in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews here says that our access to God is not based on how faithful we are. It is based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is such good news. Because if you feel unworthy, then you're right. You're not worthy. And neither am I. But Christ is worthy. And He is the one who gives us access. He is the one through whom we enter into the presence of God. Therefore, our confidence must be in Him. And if you find yourself in a place today where you've not been resting in Christ, not been trusting in Christ, then it is a good resolve, reminder to resolve to have confidence in Christ. Number two, we should resolve to walk in obedience to Christ. To walk in obedience to Christ. The writer continues there in verse 22 and says, let us draw near. So now he's giving these application points. Let us, in light of these things, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And notice the order here. Because our confidence is in Jesus, we can enter into the presence of God and we can understand that we are made clean in order to enter into that presence. Notice how much he talks about cleanliness here. We've been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've been washed with the pure water. He gives us a true heart. That means a new heart. That's that new covenant promise that God would replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. It says He gives us full assurance of our faith. Again, an assurance that rests completely in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then that picture of what He does, that cleansing work, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And here's that, that picture that we celebrated just moments ago in baptism. I've had the opportunity in recent weeks to have conversations with several people about baptism. We were able to celebrate with the Newcombs today. We have another baptism next Lord's Day. And, and anytime I have these conversations, I, I make sure to point out biblically what baptism is because we live in a, a culture where there's a lot of confusion about baptism. The baptism that you experience is as a believer, it doesn't save you. It's to tell people about the salvation experience that you've had. It is symbolic. In fact, I came up here last night and I filled up that baptistry and the water in that baptistry is the same water that goes through the rest of Bloomfield. So that's why I put a little chlorine in that water also and clean it up a bit. It's it's just water. We don't call it holy water. We don't pray a special prayer over it. It's symbolic of a cleansing work that God has done in the life of those who follow Christ. When we go under that water, Romans 6, and we are buried with Christ in baptism, we come out of that water and we are raised to walk in a new life. And that the picture there is of that cleansing work of the Gospel. And that is why we should desire to walk in obedience to Christ. Because why would we want to make filthy what He has made clean? Why would we want to make dirty that which Christ has cleansed? If we've truly experienced that salvation work, we, we should rejoice when we consider what it is that Christ has cleansed us of. I, I don't think as believers that we're encouraged to dwell on our sinful past. I, I think it's an unhealthy practice for us as Christians to sit around and trade war stories about the messed up stuff we did. And yet the Scripture does instruct us to remember what God has saved us from in order to celebrate the Gospel. For example, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral people, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Friends, if that doesn't bring you encouragement, then you might be missing out on what the Gospel teaches. But because we should rejoice when we consider 
what we used to be and what God has saved us from. And in that picture there that He has cleansed us, He has washed us, He has made us clean. Look, look at what Jesus has done for us and, and now let's walk in obedience to Him. We should desire that because He's given us a new heart. And so we should resolve to walk in obedience to Christ. Number three, we should resolve to trust in God's promises. To trust in His promises. In verse 23, the writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. That that word hold fast means we should tighten our grip and never let go no matter what, without wavering, we hold on to our hope that rests in the promises of God. And we don't let go. I was thinking about this as I was watching a, a video recently. It was from an event that happened in November of 2018. And, and it made its rounds on social media, on the news. Some of you may be uh, familiar with it as I share the story. Uh, there was a man from uh, Florida who had gone on vacation to Switzerland. A dream of a lifetime, vacation of a lifetime. So he goes to Switzerland and his first day there, he's at this beautifully scenic mountainside. He signs up to go hang gliding. It's always been a dream of his to go hang gliding. He'd never been hang gliding before. And so literally they've got videos of it. I mean, they're just on the side of a Swiss mountain and, and this is a tandem hang glide. He'd never been hang gliding, so you've got the, the professional, the instructor, who's going to glide the hang glider, and he's tethered in, he's attached to it, and this man's behind him, and he's tethered in, and he's attached, so all he has to do is just basically enjoy the ride, and the instructor will, will guide the hang glider. But as soon as they step off the side of this mountain, you realize when you watch this video, there's something terribly wrong because the instructor forgot to tether this tourist to the hang glider. He was not attached to it. So immediately, he begins to fall. And with his left hand, he grabs the hang glider bar. And with his right hand, he grabs the instructor's foot. And for 2 minutes and 14 seconds, he holds on for dear life as this hang glider glides over the Swiss mountaintop. Hundreds of feet over the air. Now I realize 2 minutes and 14 seconds may not sound like a long time to you and I right now, but I guarantee you, in that situation it would feel more like hours. But as you watch this video, you, you watch, and it's, they've got cameras all over, that this man never lets go of the bar. He is holding on literally for his life. In fact, the instructor could not fly the hang glider and hold on to the man. And so this man is left to himself to hold on and hang on, and that's exactly what he does until his feet hit the ground two minutes and 14 seconds later miraculously he survived it but he had to have surgery on his left hand he had to have seven pins and a plate put in and the doctor said it was because he held on for so long it literally was ripping his hand apart do you see the picture there no matter what he would not let go and friends that's the picture of what we're called to do in our faith the writer of hebrews says hold fast don't waver. Remember who he's writing this to. He's writing this to Christ Christians who were persecuted in their faith. Who were attacked for their faith. And he's saying, hold on and hold fast to the promises of God.
we see this situation in Iran, it's brought my attention to people that I know who are from Iran, and I had the opportunity years ago uh, on a, a mission trip to a, a different country uh, to visit with a group of believers who had escaped persecution in Iran. And one of them literally had scars all over his hands from where he was tortured for his faith. And he told me about how in Iran he was a successful businessman. He had a, a family business that had been in their family for generations. But when the police found out that he was a believer and began to threaten him and persecute him and torture him, that he literally lost everything he owned. In fact, he escaped the country with just the clothes on his back. And yet, friend, I can tell you that spending time in worship with this brother, I've rarely seen such joy in another believer. Now, how do you have joy when your body bears the scars? How do you have joy when literally everything you've ever owned is taken from you? You can have that joy if you hold fast to the promises of God. And that's what this brother was doing. And friends, that's what we're encouraged to do. And I would encourage you as we start this year to resolve to hold firm to the promises of God because we do not know what this year will hold for us. Some of you can look back on recent years and you can think about sitting in church that first Sunday of the year and, and you had no idea what was coming. And that may be the case for you today. You, you have no idea what suffering, what trial, what turmoil may come your way. But what we do know is this. We serve a God who is faithful to keep His promises. And we serve a God who has promised us not an easy life, not a suffering-free life, but He has promised us all the glory and riches of an eternal kingdom. And He has promised us that one day all this suffering and all this turmoil, all of this will end and Christ will make all things new. And He has encouraged us in the midst of our suffering to hold on and to hold fast. That tourist did not decide halfway through that experience to hold on. He held on out the gate. <laughs> and friends, we're called to hold on today. Life may be relatively smooth for you right now, relatively easy, but that may not last. Christ has not promised us an easy life, but He has called us to hold tight and to hold firm. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So he, he tells us it's going to come. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, do, do you have faith in Jesus today? Are you holding fast to that faith in Jesus today? And if you're not, then may your resolve be to hold tight to Christ and to hold on to the promises of God. Number four, we're called to resolve to encourage one another. In verse 24, the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now that phrase, stir up, we, we tend to take it negatively. In fact, uh, some of you over these last few weeks, maybe you've spent more time with your kids, your grandkids, someone else's kids than you normally do, and, and maybe you found yourself saying to one of them, hey, stop stirring things up. Who's stirring this up? We, we think about stirring something up as, as a negative, starting trouble, instigating. That's radically different than what the writer of Hebrews says here. 
He is talking about stirring one another up in an encouraging way. He's essentially saying that we are called to encourage one another to love and to good works. In fact, Jesus says as Christians that this is how the world will know that we are Christians. By our love for one another. John 13, beginning in verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Notice the order there. Because we've received the love of Jesus, we should show the love of Jesus to others. Because we've received forgiveness, we should offer forgiveness. Because we've received mercy, we should offer mercy. Christians should be the most merciful, compassionate, forgiving people on the planet. And yet this is often not how we are known. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I would say the opposite of that statement is true as well. When churches are known by their lack of love for one another, when churches are known by their disagreements and by their arguments and by their backbiting and by their gossip and by their division, that that says nothing about the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. May our resolve be, Bloomfield Baptist Church, that we are known as a people who show love for one another. And not just that, but show good works towards one another. We are called as Christians not just to love one another, but to serve one another. Titus 2 tells us we are to be zealous for good works. We've just come through this Christmas season, and one of the things that so often marks the Christmas season, especially in this area of the world, is random acts of kindness. Uh, You'll hear stories, you've probably seen stories on the news, on social media about during this time of year, people uh, like to focus on random acts of kindness and that those are great things where basically you do something for someone you don't know and you have no attachment to and, and just randomly you show them kindness. So sometimes it's something monetary, sometimes it's other things, but we celebrate these stories as we should of randomly encouraging, helping someone out. But notice that is not what the writer of Hebrews is speaking of here. There's nothing random about these acts of kindness. There's something very specific about these acts of kindness because he is calling us as brothers and sisters in the faith not just to love one another, but to do these acts of kindness to one another, to to encourage the household of faith. And to our shame at times as the church, many of us were more focused on what we can do to randomly be kind to people outside the church when God calls us, how can we encourage one another inside the church? And so consider, in this year we're in, how can you practically love one another and do good works for one another? We are called to promote good works within our church body, within our brothers and sisters in this household of faith. And so, here are some very practical suggestions. This is just, there there are many more, I'm sure, but here's a few that came to mind. How how can you practically do this? Consider in the coming year to make it a practice to visit someone who can't come to church anymore. That's a way you can show love and good works to your church family. That there are people that, that love this church, who have come to this church for years, participate in this church, but physically they're, they're not able to be here anymore. And they long to. And so go see them. Be an encouragement to them. I'll never forget 
years ago, one of the dear uh, saints that was a part of our church, she's gone home to be with the Lord now, but I was, I was doing this, I was going to see her, she couldn't come here anymore, and she was well into her 90s, and we were sitting out on her porch, and as we sat there, a spring day, this car drove by, and she just pointed to it and said, you see that person there? I bet they're going to Walmart. They could go to church, but they don't. I mean, why would you go to Walmart when you can go to church? If I could go to Walmart, I'd be at church. So, take heed. If you go to Walmart, you don't come to church. What was she saying? She was saying, why wouldn't you come gather with the brothers and sisters of the faith if you had that opportunity? And she longed to be here, but just couldn't be here. Well, what an encouragement it is when we go to those people and visit them and pray for them and show them kindness. So consider, how can you do that? in this new year. Another suggestion would be to serve a, a widow or a widower. And people who have spent most of their lives in the fellowship of family and now find themselves at times struggling with isolation. Invite them over for a meal. Go to their home. Find out what you can do for them, how you can serve them. That's a practical way you can show love and good works in our church body. Write a note to encourage someone in their faith. Pray for someone. Let them know that you're praying for them. Find practical ways. Just little things. Maybe you don't write notes. Maybe you haven't bought a stamp in three years. Send a text message. <laughs> Email. Do something just to let another believer in the household of faith know that you prayed for them, that you appreciate them, and that you're seeking to serve them. Resolve to encourage one another. Number five, finally resolve to be a gospel witness. Verse 25, the writer says, Not not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So, so even in the early church, we see this problem of people who were neglecting to come together with the body of Christ. Now, contextually, this is likely a reference to those believers or professing believers who are now abandoning their faith or moving away from their faith, or at a minimum, they, they weren't willing to risk things by associating themselves with these other Christians. They were likely being persecuted for being Hebrews who now were following Christ. And so they weren't coming together with the church body because they feared that persecution. Perhaps some were already apostate and walked away from their faith entirely. I think that's likely the context here. And yet the problem is not so different from what we have today. Well, we have many, many people here at Bloomfield Baptist Church who neglect, who do not come together with us. And it's not because of persecution. It may be because of apostasy. And so what can we do? I, I realize I'm... I'm not preaching so much to those people now. I mean, you guys have perfect church attendance in 2020. I mean, y'all are the cream of the crop. You've been here every Sunday this year. And so I'm not, not harping on you for neglecting your church attendance. So, so what can we do in regards to those who have neglected? And I think the answer is real simple. It's, is we need to be an encouragement to these folks. We need to pick up the phone and call them. We need to go by and see them. And we need to be a gospel witness to them. When we need to stop assuming that if someone walked an aisle and got baptized here 40 years ago, that that means they're okay. The fruit of their life, if they're not here at any other church today, may indicate that they don't actually understand the gospel that they once professed. And we should be a witness to them. It's the most loving thing we can do is to share the gospel with others, especially those who think they're already saved but may not be. 
And so He warns us, don't become that. Don't, don't neglect to meet together. We should reach out to those who are. And we are to do these things in light of what? Verse 25, And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice kind of the bookends on what He said here. We need to draw near to Jesus because there's a day of Jesus that's drawing near to us. What does that mean? He's saying while we have opportunity, while we have this Lord's Day, while we have this day in January 2020, we should do everything we can to draw near to Christ and to grow in our faith because, friends, the day of Christ returning just got a year closer. The day is drawing near to us. And if you are living in unrepentant sin, then you should fear the judgment that comes with that day. And if you are seeking to walk in obedience with Christ, then you should long for the great rejoicing that comes with that day. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says we should eagerly anticipate it. But either way, we need to realize it is coming near to us. So in this day, while we have opportunity, between this day and that day, whatever day that might be, it's closer to us now. So what can we do to grow in our faith and to trust in Jesus? And I think the very first thing we need to make sure we have done is that we have actually trusted in Jesus. And so I want you to take a moment this morning and just consider the gospel truth that, that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory, that the wages of sin is death, but that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, have you turned to Christ? Have you confessed Him as Lord? Have you placed your trust in Him? And if you have not, know that the day of Christ's return is drawing all the more near. And the opportunity for you to do that is getting shorter and shorter. And my prayer for you is that God would do a work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you to this faith and repentance. I realize that many of you have done that. You have trusted in Christ. And, and the encouragement for you and I today is this. Resolve now. Make up your mind now to walk with the Lord. To trust in Him. To walk in obedience. To believe in His promises. To hold fast to your faith no matter what may come in this coming year.